this week on Our Thing. With my condition, it's not a matter of if you would get colon cancer, but when, unless you remove the entirety of the large intestine. Author Michael Caprio recounts his battle with a potentially fatal genetic disease. And from that point on, they live life based on that, quote, reality that isn't true at all, but they decided that it is. And spiritual instructor Royce Morales discusses the application of her technique to a deeply personal tragedy. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. I am your host, Gunnar Limbaugh, joined by my co-host, Bill Crooks from Partners in Crime Podcast. So it just seems just the way it's worked out is we had some of the shows about illness and recovery, which makes me think of my mother. It's very sad. My mother was sick all her life. All my life, my mother was mentally ill. Uh, manic depressive, they call it. She would have these nervous breakdowns and she would like flip out and lose her mind. She'd end up in a mental institution, right? Which is super sad. Then they'd get her medicated. You know, I had an abusive father who I watched him beating my mother with like a broom handle. Yeah, who's mentally ill. Yeah, yeah. she's mentally ill and he's drunk. So I have this distinct memory of like him shoving her down. She trips back into the bathtub and knocks a shower curtain down. She's laying in there and he picks up her broom and he starts whacking her with his broom. Right. So I walk up and say, daddy, no, daddy, no, stop, stop, stop. And I grab the broom. So he, he lets me have the broom. I take the broom and I go hide it in the closet. And after a few minutes, they're still fighting and yelling, and arguing a couple minutes. I say, all right, dad, I'm going to give you the broom back. Don't hit mom. Susie Hank takes the broom, he starts whacking my mom again with it, right? I just What do you think he's gonna sweep? Yeah, I know. I I just felt I I and as a little kid, I'm just like, here, I'll give it back now. This is really sad. That's what I'm saying. I don't like to recall these stories, be so negative. But there's one particular incident uh when I, before she died, she was living in an apartment a couple miles down the road from where I live, right? So I happen to be at my buddy Gino's baseball game and I'm watching him play baseball and it's a place called Kite Monroe Baseball Diamond, Softball Diamond, whatever. It's like all these baseball diamonds, like a park. And I look over and I see my mom walking and she's heavy set, kind of a fat, heavy set Italian woman, 100% Sicilian woman. And she's walking along and I see her. She's, my mom's right there. And for whatever reason, I didn't get up and run down and say, mom, you know, and say hi to her. Maybe I was embarrassed or whatever, and I watched her walk away. And she's on foot, so she had like two miles to walk to her house. You know, I, I just wish I could go back in time and do it again. I'd run over there, hey, mom, give her a hug and a kiss. Because uh, she loved me so much. She was so adoring. Like, I was her favorite. You know, I was her life. My mother would call me at least three to five times a day just to say, what are you doing? How are you? Five times, and I get sick of it. Mom, stop calling me. What do you want? I was, you know, a kid. I didn't, right. well... What ended up happening was she went into the hospital to get a hysterectomy, which is a uh, pretty routine surgery. And she, she called me the night before. She said, I'm going to the hospital surgery tomorrow. She's like, you know, I'll call you after I'm out. I said, okay. She was always a little kind of drugged up from her medication. So just a little out of it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm all good. I went out to a party down the street and my friend had a party. I ended up passing out on a couch with some girl. And I woke up in the morning to the sound of somebody banging on the basement window. Boom, 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 boom. My girlfriend was looking through the basement window at me laying on a couch with some girl who she knew, a girl named Mindy. So I'm completely busted. My girlfriend don't even bring it up. She says, your mom's dying. You have to go. You have to go. 
And I throw the girl off me and I run upstairs. Like, what do you mean my mom? She's like, your mom's in a coma. And then we went to the hospital and she had stopped breathing. They they actually noticed she stopped breathing because she wasn't snoring. And they had her on medications and they had her on, you know, pain meds and all these different medications. I could have sued the hospital and made millions of dollars, but I didn't want to be rich from my mother's death. That was it. They had to pull the plug and she, she died. And I was 19 years old. Very sad story. At the funeral, I've been to a couple of funerals over the years, my great grandmother and a couple other relatives or whatever, but this is my mother. When you picture like a mafia funeral, you couldn't be more stereotypical than this. All there was was 100% Sicilian dudes hanging around, talking in pods and pockets, and everybody loved my mom. She was a sweetheart, right? Benyasco's funeral home was a famous funeral home in Detroit. Like all the Sicilians, especially the mob, the funerals are there at Benyasco's, right? It's a little anteroom, and I'm in there talking to some of my cousins, you know, and it's a very sad, you know, affair. It's my mother. And all of a sudden, I hear my uncle walk in and say to my other uncle, he says, the feds are outside taking pictures. And I hear him say it, so I walk over and go, what'd you say? He's like, the feds are outside taking pictures. I make pictures of what? He's like, people, everybody coming and going. He's like, there's probably an undercover in here seeing who's talking, seeing who's, you know, handing envelopes, he's doing whatever. And I was like, couldn't believe that the FBI would be that disrespectful to, to to be doing that, snapping photos of people coming and going to my mother's funeral. And I remember going outside and I looked and I looked across the street. I don't see him. So I come back in. I said, I don't see him. He goes, go back out, look across the street, black van corner. There are two guys in there with a photo lens. And sure enough, I went out there and boom. So there are some famous pictures, FBI photos of Jack Toko, the mob boss, and all the basically heavy hitting mob guys, they're in a book. And you could see it's exactly the same funeral home. Now, the feds were there snapping pictures. And I guess, according to my uncles, that they were trying to figure out who was coming and going and who was going to be with who. Or I don't know. What do you think What they wanted? Yeah, I think it's a perfect situation to make a lot of connections because they don't know who knows who. And it's not like you guys all go to a party except a funeral like this, a toko. Yeah, it's perfect. Everybody's going to come and you'll start making connections. You can see who talks outside, who leaves with who, who came with who. You know, I guarantee they were inside. Oh, wise guy, eh? All right. This is my favorite part of the show. Street Beast, Bill Crooks, and Partners in Crime podcast. I enjoy this because it allows him to kind of take over the show and report on what's happening in the underworld, gangster stuff. And I can kind of sit back. Bill, what do you got for us tonight on Street Beast? Well, this is the big story, kind of. Everybody's talking about it, so we got to bring it up. So it goes like this. Federal prosecutors in New York on Wednesday announced the arrest of 10 men allegedly belonging to or associated with the Gambino Mafia family, as well as the arrest in Italy of six other alleged organized crime members and associates. Paraphrasing, mobsters were acting like mobsters. (gasps) Oh my God, Gambinos were extorting and bribing and racketeering. And like I said, these are busts, not convictions. And even if you bust all these guys, and even if they rat, and even if you put them all away for life, Everybody's going to move up and the game's going to keep playing. There's always a vacuum to be filled. Every time they say we took a big bite out of the mob, not a chance. There's money to be made. There's always going to be a hungry person ready to fill it. The names will change. Often quote Johnny Dangerously, that movie with Michael Keaton, when he goes, I'm shutting down the gang. And Joe Piscopo, he goes, well, I'm opening it back up. And the new management. <laughs> That's your street beats. It's a non-story story. But Gambino bust in New York, 16 guys, some of them in Italy. Gangsters doing what gangsters do. 
Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment on our thing, 1010 The King. We'll be right back. Uh. Hey, have you checked out our thing apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live. Featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now, we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you're ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-852-1736. 800-852-1736. That's 800-852-1736. Have you ever met a single person in your life that enjoys paying taxes? No, no one does. If you can't sleep at night because you have a huge problem with the IRS, I've got some free advice for you. This service is strictly limited to individuals that owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes. And if you qualify, we can guarantee that you won't be writing a big fat check to the IRS or our services cost you nothing. The first 100 people that call today will get a free tax consultation worth $500. Stop worrying about your IRS problem. We can help you. We promise. Call the tax doctor right now. I mean right now to learn more. 800-322-8714. 800-322-8714. That's 800-322-8714. Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. I'd like to welcome my first guest, Michael Caprio, a good old-fashioned Dago from New Jersey. Got an interesting story, wrote an interesting book based on his true life experience. He's had a rough road, and we've had some guests on recently that have had some rough roads. And I know I don't like to be a Debbie Downer like that, but also I think that a lot of people who are listening can relate to these type of situations where we all have rough patches in life, things to overcome. And writers like Michael, they write it out so it can be a kind of a blueprint for people who are struggling or going through the similar or same thing. But Michael, reading your bio, I see that you, you want to delve into fiction writing and you just love writing, which I love. You know, it, that's mm-hmm. awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do they say that? You grinded your teeth or whatever on your first book. Yeah, it's cutting your teeth. Cutting your teeth. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's what I need Bill for. But then you were like, I really enjoy this writing thing. You know, it was like me when I was in prison. When I first started writing, I just fell in madly in love with it. And you don't typically think of a guy who looks like me as this guy who's madly in love with writing. But all my life, I was a writer just waiting to happen, you know, and mostly because I was a reader like yourself. I know that you're a voracious reader and that kind of sparked it in your play. So you want to write thrillers and horror, which I think is super cool. And I, I don't think you should limit yourself to that. 
because like if you ever just say i'm going to write one particular genre then you're going to think in that realm all the time in that box too many writers say i'm a sci-fi writer and they just write sci-fi or a fantasy writer and just write fantasy i'm not like that i like to read all different genres like bill he loves different genres he has his favorites but i like to write what i enjoy reading i write very very big stories and that's another piece of advice i want to give never limit yourself in size and scope to the story it can be absolutely enormous and i think that's a big mistake a lot of writers do they put the story in a certain box and to go any bigger is too grandiose too romantic too whatever and they don't go there when in fact the reason people buy books are to escape the normal everyday reality and they want to go into a world that they've never experienced seen or you know been part of so it's okay to make a big story like you always think big when you're writing that's all i'm saying and the bigger the better in my opinion so welcome to the show by the way mike and tell us a little about you we're going to get into your story now and what your book's about and things like that and it's very inspirational but you're originally from new jersey mm -hmm. tell me a little about yourself growing up were you a book nerd were you an athlete tell me about yourself let you mm -hmm. get a word. Yeah, no, thanks for uh, having me. Sorry, Mike, your time's up. <laughs> <laughs> nice having you. Thanks yeah. for coming and have a great night. <laughs> yes, I, I write about this a fairly decent amount in my book, but I grew up in a pack on New Jersey, and that's pretty much the furthest left corner. It's like in Sussex County, all the way to the top. <laughs> and um, pretty much with myself, uh, when I was in high school, I was kind of unsure of myself. I wasn't really a big reader. That happened after my surgeries and later in life. I was more so interested in TV shows and how narratives were written in a show and how characters develop and stuff like that. But I wasn't really diving too deep into it. I was just kind of watching on the surface level. And as far as like extracurricular stuff, I didn't really partake in a lot of that. And that was kind of a regret to some extent that I've learned from obviously in my life. But when I reflect back on it and I reflected on it in my book, I kind of felt like I was so unsure of myself and where to go in life. And then I had my diagnosis, which happened. And that just made things even more uncertain and murky for me. And, you know, I was already confused at 18, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, having never really tapped into any hobbies, so to speak, and just kind of going through the motions and not really hating my life that seriously. Well, it's, it's interesting because you're a good looking guy, <laughs> you know, kind of a studly looking dude. You'd think that I mean, this guy was a ladies man, probably played football, but you never know. You can't judge a book by its cover. No pun intended. Exactly. I appreciate that. No, uh, I've definitely done a lot of growing mentally, physically, and all that since high school. I think a lot of ways my life started for real after all my surgeries, because that's when I started to just take my life a little more seriously. And that's when I started to just kind of value each day and really just try to get to know Amen. myself better and try new things. So wait, I don't want to get too far ahead because you keep talking about these surgeries. People are listening to like, what kind of surgery. Yeah, but I will say this, um, I, I can relate in many ways because for me, like life didn't start till after prison. You know what I'm saying? I didn't find myself. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to be or mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about myself really and until I went to prison and discovered and I guess that was you with, with your condition I, I can't even pronounce your condition but I'm gonna let you talk about it and like I know it runs in your family mm -hmm. but what exactly is it and how did you discover yeah. you had it and what happened from it yep so my condition is called familial adenomatose polyposis or fap for short you think they make it easier to say <laughs> yeah, doctor no right. doctor speak always has to make it very complicated you know it can never be simple right. for everybody else it always has to be an acronym or something but yeah so basically what that means is i have a gene in my body and for everyone who's had it in my family we have a gene that doesn't stop the growth of polyps so what polyps are are they're small 
precancerous growths that grow in everyone's large intestine, but they typically don't show up until you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, around there is when you should start getting them routinely. If you find them early, they're not a big deal. And that's what you would go for a colonoscopy for. In my case, the gene multiplies them. So instead of having like one or two in my 30s, I had thousands when I was 18. So, oh my God. Yeah, with my condition, it's not a matter of if you would get colon cancer, but when, unless you remove the entirety of the large intestine, which is where the, the majority of the growth happens. Wow. So, and your mother and grandmother had it? Yeah. So, my grandma had it. My grandma's mom had it. My grandma's sister had it. My mom has it. Clearly genetic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm the only guy in the family to have it just by chance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sucks, man. Did it cause you pain in the beginning? Is that how you knew it? Were you having intestinal problems or or did you just got to, for preventative purposes, have a colonoscopy and they saw it? Yeah. So it was strictly preventative. That was like something that was pretty difficult about the whole experience as I went into the hospital, a healthy person in quotations, but underneath the surface, it, it wasn't quite like that. So for me, because it runs in my family and when my parents decided to have children, when my brother, who's five years older than me, when he was in high school, he got the blood test too, but it came back negative. So they kind of assumed since it's 50-50, I would have it. Yeah. Obviously, they hoped I wouldn't, but then I had to get the same blood test when I was in high school. It came back positive. And then to make sure the blood test was positive, I had to get a colonoscopy as well to confirm. And that's when I got shown the results was uh, my senior year of high school. After we already knew from the blood test, I had to get the colonoscopy and they showed me the results. And I remember when they were showing me it, it looked like bubble wrap. There was just thousands of them and he was just circling all of them. What was your reaction to that? Was it fear or did you know from your family that this condition can be handled through surgery and medication and stuff? I'm sure you're probably scared though. Oh yeah, terrified. I mean, it was a mixed bag and I also wrote about this too. I did have my family to look at and, you know, we're all good today. And, you know, back then I was able to look at role models and that's what they would say to me. Like, look, we're all good now and that'll be you eventually. But as you know, the internet exists and I was curious. So I started looking up what my condition is, what my surgery was going to be, recovery time and all that. And obviously when you go online, you're just going to read horror stories of people who, you know, it didn't turn out well for. And that was something that put doubt in my mind. And then I was beginning to wonder, you know, like, is this going to work out like everyone else? And, you know, maybe harsh. Are you a man of faith? Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the key in times like this. If you turn to God and believe in faith, he will work it out. And even if you were to die, it would still be for his purpose. Mm -hmm. He'd have a reason for it and it would affect somebody else. And that person would affect somebody, whatever the case, it's all part of the butterfly effect. So I always would say to you, a uh, young man like yourself, like, I know this is scary, but you don't have to be scared because God's in complete control. He's got you. So just don't worry about it and just turn to God. Don't be Googling the world's largest polyp. The Internet's yeah. evil. <laughs> that was a big mistake. <laughs> Relax it out. So you went in and started getting surgeries. And what did they do? Yeah. So for me in particular, it's a little different for everyone in my family, but we'll just focus on me for now just to keep it a little simpler. I had to get the entirety of my large intestine removed. That's the part that is disease. That's the part that would cause harm. And then obviously after that happens, the primary jobs of your large intestine are strictly for retaining water and for retaining waste. So it's a two part. A lot of people I think, you know, always wonder like how I'm able to digest food and whatnot. The main parts of digestion are done in your small intestine, like absorbing the nutrients and all the important stuff in that regard. 
So for me, they have to rearrange my small intestine, so to speak. So I'll just kind of draw it out how my surgeon drew it out for me. He basically said that he had to spread them far and wide to occupy the space that was missing from the large intestine. And then at the very end of my ileum, which is the end of my small intestine, they uh, create a J-shaped pouch where they kind of suture it and structure it to replace the end of my large intestine to prevent wearing an ostomy for the rest of my life. Yeah. And if you're not sure what an ostomy is, um, real quick. Yeah, we, we know what it is. Okay, gotcha. It's a bag of poop that's <laughs> basically taped to your stomach. Pretty it's much. not a good time. Yeah, nothing. Do you feel any different now? Or do you, I feel, imagine like your number two situation probably <laughs> happens a little. I know that's diving deep. No, but. that's that's all That's all part of it. You know, I mean, GI diseases, that's all part of it. They're poop-related diseases, right. you know, for lack of a better word. And I do talk about that in my story. It's changed moderately. I'm sure if someone was like placed into my shoes for a day, they'd be like, what the hell is going on? But for me, from my perspective, yeah. going on eight years now, post-op, it's just kind of become my new normal, as I call it, my new day-to-day -day life. And the thing is, I've come so far from where I was in the beginning. Like like the first year, a big thing was always going out and wondering where is the bathroom because, you know, I was it was like a mental thing as well as a physical thing. Or if any event yeah. had food, I'd be afraid to eat and stuff like that. And it just created a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of it is mental. At least for me, it was. I don't want to speak on everyone. But a lot of it for me was just yeah. like panicking. And that kind of feeds into it. But for the most part, in the beginning, just to give you an idea of how far I've come, it was like anywhere from 20 times a day on a horrible day or 10 to 15. And now I'm like, two to six times a day. I mean, that's not that much different than me, Bill. I mean, I don't know about you, but now, I... that's better than your average Taco Bell uh, patron. <laughs> right? That's one day at Taco Bell. Better than some of my friends. I go <laughs> two to three times a day. I, I don't have the greatest digestive system. My wife has, um, can't remember the condition, the st stomach where she's got colitis. No, it's another kind of popular one. I can't think of the name. All the um, kids are doing it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, she had to go in the hospital and we had a scary moment like about a year ago and her mother died from colon cancer so he's like how long have you had the symptoms of these stomach and she's like i don't know on and off for a couple of years she goes you didn't think to get it checked out you know your mom died from it's like i don't know so anyways they went and did a colonoscopy and she's fine it was just like i can't think of the name but anyways she's she's fine and this long drawn experience actually helps you become a man really yeah it mm -hmm. teaches you uh, perseverance and strength and patience and faith all the things that you need to be a man, and then it hits you. I need to put this down on paper, so you decided to write a book about it. I imagine it's going to chronicle your life, your story, and what led to the point where this happened, and then you persevered and you got through it. I don't know what you do for a living career-wise, but you seem like a healthy, handsome young guy. I mean, what do you do? Yeah, so right now I actually work in payroll. So I work for a smaller company. I was working at a bigger one earlier this year, but it was super corporate -y work from home and it just wasn't really a big fan of it. I kind of wanted to get back out into the office and all that. So then I had a couple of friends that I made from my time at previous two companies since I got out of college. And then they were doing a startup and they were just like, hey, want to come work for us if you don't like working for them? Yeah. And I said, please. <laughs> so then they took me over there and it's been much smoother sailing since then. Are you in Jersey working or you're or in the city? Yeah, I'm in Fairfield. 
I might be flying into New Jersey in a couple of weeks, probably Newark. Oh, nice. And I, I was there several months back. I landed in Newark. I went and spent three days with Armando Sante, the actor. Are you familiar with oh, Armando nice. Sante? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I went and spent three days at his house. Actually, you've been there twice. Cool. He sent a driver to come get me. You go to this guy's mansion. You know, he's got his Emmys and Golden Globes and crap all over. His, yeah. You know, I'm taking pictures with him. From Gotti. Yeah, Gotti, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you had a message you wanted to get to the audience or readers or both, what would it be? Yeah, so my overarching message is actually the epigraph of my book. And if I can read it real quick. It's a quote that I've obviously felt strongly enough about to make it the epigraph. And it's just something that my mom, it's in a card. So she sent it to me after I got out of the hospital. Just to summarize it quickly, when I had everything that happened to me, I wasn't in a good place mentally and I thought about giving up. But like you said, faith, perseverance, a lot of things happened where the light bulb clicked in my head and I started becoming more open and positive about my situation and trying to make the most of it and figuring out what said plan is for my life. And basically my mom took that as me changing my attitude. And that's what I believe the overarching theme of my story is. And the quote says it better than me, so I'll read it. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past and education and money and circumstances than failures and successes than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Amen, Bill. Amen. That, that's, that's by Charles Swindoll. That's good stuff right there. And you're so right. Because I've been asked, mm-hmm. you know, I've done some public speaking, a couple things. And, and they're like, you know, how did you do it? How did you survive 13 years in prison? How did you change and attract you know, a beautiful, high value woman? How did you create the world that you have now, which is nothing like the world I had? I had more money, but I didn't have the happiness. I said, attitude. It all starts with your mindset. And so how do you approach the world? You're going to have a winner's attitude, then you're going to be a winner. If you have a loser's attitude, you're going to be a loser. If you're going to have a victim attitude, you're going to always be a victim. You know what I'm saying? So the attitude is incredibly powerful. And that's the message in your book. Yes. And it's also just the theme of like how you were saying earlier, the whole butterfly effect. I really do believe in that as well. In my book, I write, there's so many different examples from my story, but this is like something that I learned after my surgeries, just learning about my family's history, all the things that had to go right, how we found our surgeons, the perseverance that my grandma had to have after having four children, two of them having the condition to not having it with her having it, all that in the 70s when it was totally new and there was experimental stuff going on just all up and down the line. And I was born on Christmas Eve. I wasn't supposed to be born. That's another thing. There's like a million examples of fate in my story. If one thing goes wrong, my whole family, like my dad never meets my mom. They never have kids. I'm not here. My brother's not here. Butterfly. Yeah. So if they gave up, life would be totally different, not just for us, but like the whole world. Exactly. The whole world would be different. You know, if I decided to, you know, throw up the white towel at 18 years old, I'm, you know, I'm 27 now. There's been so much life that's happened, but there's been so much life that's been lived since then. It's like, if I gave up on this, the world would be totally different. I live each day with that intent because I've seen it in my own life. 
and I'm just very aware that each decision has a very far-reaching implication that even I'm not probably able to see in the moment. And that's your book. That's the message in your book. Yes, mm-hmm, definitely. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing, man. That's that's what we want to hear. And I think anyone who's listening to this, read his book and take those tidbits, those nuggets from it. Like you said, you could be in a really bad place. I know a lot of people are addicted to drugs or whatever the case. There's a million different things that can get you down and make you want to give up, right? You could be in prison. You could be sick. You could have cancer, whatever the case. Read this guy's book. He turned a bad thing into a good thing, and it teaches you how to persevere. That's what I take from this story. This guy's story could teach people how to persevere through their own hardships. doesn't matter what it is. Everybody's got them. Some are worse than others. That's mm-hmm. the message in, in his book and his story, and that, that's a great message. Bill, did you have anything you wanted to ask him? Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of New York Giants stuff in the background. There's red flags that you still might be a little lost. I'm yeah, concerned. I mean, I, I asked I saw that, that too. Every- I'm like... This guy's in Jersey, man. He should be a Jets fan. <laughs> oh, stop I mean, it. it. That's only convenient this year. <laughs> I'm just saying. Right? When I lived in New York, the Jets and the Giants played in the Meadowlands, right? Yeah, they still do. Do, do they mm-hmm. still? No, they still well, do. they're in Jersey. I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, and that's why they hate yeah. each other so much. I was telling him I like like seven NFL teams. Giants are one of them. <laughs> well, you're lucky. <laughs> As of lately, at least. When I was in high school, it was great. I was always a fan. Although I, I liked him when Eli was on. Yeah, no, I was going to say, when I was in high school, it was great. That's what hooked me as a fan. During my developmental years, they won two Super Bowls in four years, so I was hooked for life. And you know, I think when he beat the Patriots that first time, that might be my favorite Super Bowl. During the bad seasons, I still rewatch it. Oh, dude, <laughs> that's my least favorite. That's my least favorite one. Are you kidding me? Favorite. I was so Man, I was, when he I th- him around and then he caught the football on his helmet on his that's head. Ever on his head. Greatest upset. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, it <laughs> that was. Great. It was, and the Patriots went undefeated. And yeah, didn't and win then the Super Bowl. <laughs> that's why I didn't man, like. I wanted them to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> Not me. When I saw that at 11 or 12 years old, however old I was, that hooked me. That was it. <laughs> I stood no chance. I don't know. I was a Brady fan. By the way, anyone listening, he's got New York Giants curtains and stuff in the background. He's got bobbleheads. <laughs> this guy's a Giants fan. Well, yeah, there's more. Go Giants. There's a lot more, too. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, let everybody know where they can find your book and find you if they want to follow you. I imagine you're available for questions. If anybody wants to ask you um, about your condition or maybe they think they Mm -hmm. might have it or know someone, or if they just want to talk to you about inspiration, like maybe they can reach out to you. You seem like an approachable kind of guy. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not above people reaching out to me and talking to me. (laughs) So where can they find you? So my website has everything, but I'll just go through everything. So my website is MikeCaprioAuthor.com. And then on there, you can find my Instagram and everything else. But also my Instagram is Mike Caprio underscore author. And then the majority of my posting is done on there. And I also have a Facebook page called um, A Bump in the Road. And that's also the name of the book. It's available on Amazon. It's called A Bump in the Road, My Medical Journey Over Potholes, Detours, and the Bridge to Gratitude. Thanks for having me on. We'll be in touch. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Hey, Mike. Thanks, man. Good to meet you. Sure, we enjoyed you, man. God bless you. Keep up the good work. God bless you too, guys. Mm-hmm. Looks like we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back. Has someone in your family lost a job recently and now you can't afford your mortgage payment? Or do you have a rental property and your tenants aren't paying you? We can come to the rescue and pay you cash for your home immediately. Yes, sell your home and get cash all over the phone without dealing with real estate agents or having to waste time showing your home to lukewarm buyers. You don't need to lose your house to foreclosure. If you have equity in your home, we'll buy your home and give you cash within days, all in a simple over the phone and virtual process. Call now before your situation gets worse. Sell a home you can't afford or just need anymore and get the cash you need today. Call this number now. 800-950-3143. 
That's 800-950-3143. Paid for by Want to Sell. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. That's 800-870-3609. So welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. And now I welcome my second guest, Royce Morales, an author, an inspirer, that's even a word, somebody who writes very inspirational books and literature. And I've had her on my show before, and she's another one of those guests who have very compelling, inspirational, motivational, kind of self-personal development type of writing, which I'm a big fan of. But Royce, thanks for being on the show. If you could, tell us a little about yourself where you're from and where you grew up and what you were like as a young person and what led you down the path of being an author. I'm from California originally and actually California native, strange but true. And I have always been a questioner. My middle name is Skeptic and I've always been looking for the answers to life as I'm sure most of us are to some degree, but I was really obsessive about it, even as a young child and would ask my mom questions and she couldn't answer them. And it was very frustrating. And anyway, when I got old enough, I started reading anything I could read about spirituality, self-development, inner questions, you name it, I was reading it. And it just got so frustrating that I kind of gave it all up. I just said, oh, forget it. There's no answers. And then I would argue with people if they had beliefs that had given them answers. I thought that it was just all bunk. And I would get in these long arguments with people. I started doing some inner work. Gosh, back in the 70s, I did Est and all that stuff that everybody was into in the 70s. And I found that it would feel good for a minute, but I'd go home and I'd be flipping everybody off on the freeway and you know nothing would really stick. <laughs> <laughs> you right. know, it was like, right. oh. You know, yelling at my husband, yelling at my child, and it, it was very frustrating. So long story short, I was learning how to do channeling. I was at an organization that was teaching how to be a channeler or a medium, as they called it in those days. And my teacher said to me, I'm going on vacation. Can you cover for me for these classes? I had been there about three years, and I had become a pretty adept channeler. I substituted for her in one of her classes and I did nothing really. I just sat there and everybody talked and I just kind of coordinated things. And afterwards, one of the people came up to me and said, you know, you seem to know a lot of stuff. Would you consider teaching me? And I thought she was out of her mind. I said, I'm, you know, I'm learning just like you are. But right. out of my mouth came, I would love to bring your friends. And she did. She brought 10 people into my living room. And I sat there and I stuttered and stammered and I had no idea what I was talking about. I just kind of reiterated some of the stuff that I had learned through the years. And everybody came back the next week and I found that I started sort of, I don't even want to call it channeling. I was just kind of intuitively getting stuff and saying it out loud and everybody loved it. And eventually I came up with my own technique to help people to get further into who they really are, doing some deep digging, exposing the real them, discovering their purpose. Did you have a process at all or, or you just went with the flow or did you slowly go, okay, if I touch on this, 
that hit a nerve and I touched on that and that resonated. And what do you like build a formula or just kind of went with it? Actually, it's kind of a funny story. I was talking about all this spiritual stuff that I had learned. And one of my students looked at me and said, that's all well and good, but how do you get there? And that's the question I've been asking myself for years. Right. And I said, okay, well, here's how. <laughs> and I had one of my students sit down and I had her close her eyes and I led her through a guided process. And at the end of the process, she felt as though everything in her life had shifted. She had released some old stuff and got in touch wow. with some very higher consciousness awareness. And afterwards, everybody was as blown away as I was. And from that point on, I was using that particular technique, so to speak, right. by helping people. And it works. And again, it was all intuitive. It just, yeah. I was the recipient of it. Well, that's kind of indicative of somebody who has a natural talent. When it comes easy and naturally, I don't really put any forethought yeah. in writing a novel. I just know how to do it. It comes natural. And it's, so yeah. I think yeah. whenever you have this natural gift or an ability to do something, no matter what it is, it's what it's meant to be. Absolutely. Yeah. But Joyce, isn't also true that your natural ability came after years of study and searching? So you kind of did the homework, yeah. right? Um, I did the kind of the prep work, so to speak. But the technique that I used was not anything I had ever experienced before. It just came naturally, as as Gunnar said. It just happened. And not even an evolution of the other things that you'd learned? No, nothing. That's crazy. That's interesting. Nothing. Yeah. And through the years, I kind of fine tuned it and, you know, allowed it to get more evolved, so to speak. And working with people taught me. Well, what are some of those techniques, if you don't mind me asking, if we want to know? They're secret. <laughs> Give me a couple of bullet points of things that you discover work for people. Well, basically what I do with people is they will sit down and talk to me and tell me whatever issue is going on or whatever button is being pushed or any problem they have, a situation that's stuck. And I help them discover the origins of where that particular thing sourced back mm. to. And it can be in this life, it can be in past lives, it could be in between lives, it can be in all kinds of places, but these things are not new. These things are things that carry forth for the entire life or several lives. So once you discover the origins and kind of shift into a more higher consciousness awareness of where it came from, these things can dissolve literally before your very eyes. <laughs> so you said you just kind of get back to what the root of the cause is, like mm -hmm. a psychologist would do. And then how did you help them turn the corner and like fix it and evolve to be a higher conscious, happier person? Well, it's not psychology, first of all. Psychologists will say, oh gosh, you must have felt abandoned when your parents got divorced. That's psychology. What I would do is find an exact incident of something that either happened to them or something that they actually caused and have them look at all they decided about themselves from that, because that becomes yeah. their inner programming and that becomes how they live and what they believe about themselves. And from that point on, they live life based on that, quote, reality yeah. that isn't yeah. true at all, but they decided that it is. I'm a perfect example of that. If you go back to my childhood and there's a couple of events in my life, whether my abusive father beating my mother, whatever it was, once I became a troubled kid, that was my identity. I was the troubled kid. But yeah, I, I can see where you're yeah. going. Where take it back to the origins. How do you see yourself in this situation? It's all a matter of self-perception. So at one point, did you decide you wanted to write this and write a book to help people? It took me years, actually. <laughs> people kept saying to me, you've got to write this down because this is really important. And it 
literally took me probably 30 years of teaching this for me to sit down and say, okay, I want it written. You know, the classes that I was doing were very small. I had, you know, the maximum 12 people in these groups. So I could give everybody individual attention. And if somebody got triggered by what I said, I could answer it right then. And, you know, I was just afraid that people would just kind of (laughs) go flipping out from all of this, just reading it. So finally, my intuition, my guidance, my inner knowingness that it's okay. You can write it now. People are ready for this. So I wrote actually two books before the book I'm going to talk about, but I wrote two books about my teachings so that people could get an idea of what this stuff entails. It's certainly not the same as doing it in person with me in a group, yeah. but it's it's the basic information. Yeah. And it took me quite a long time to write it. And plus I add not only the root, I add the spiritual aspect of it, which is a whole other ball game, which is at least 50% of the work that I do, which is, okay, fine, all of that happened. And that's been your programming and that's the source of it. But what about your higher consciousness? What about your spirit? Right. What does that have to say about it? So we incorporate both aspects of ourselves, which is really important. Oh, of course. Yeah. How do you get them to this point, though? Is it a trance? Is it hypnotism? How long does it take for you to start that person from point zero to get them to that point that they found the thing? Because it seems like it would take days or weeks. Or years. Well, or lifetimes, you know, but it depends on each person. It's a meditative process where I ask questions and I teach people how to go within and trust what's there and how to feel it and how to release it and all of that. But it's a meditative process. I've had some students that get it immediately. I've had some students that I've been working with for 20 years because there's so much there that, you know, they've got to dig it out and release it. So people are stubborn sometimes. They don't want... Yeah, I could see people just putting up walls, you know what I mean? Because they want to be helped, but they don't want to change. Yeah. Usually they don't last in my classes. Those types, yeah. Usually they leave, the skeptics or... Yeah. I can see that. So then later on in life, you're married, you have kids, you know, you have a couple of books, you're, you're teaching these people, you're helping them get into the core of their problems. And then your husband ends up having a stroke. He's 56 years old. Probably were living a pretty comfortable, happy life. Everything seemed great. He's probably pretty good shape, whatever. And then one day there's a stroke and that kind of changed everything for you, obviously. And this ultimately led you to write your new book. Yes, everything in my life changed from that. And yes, he was in good shape. He was athletic. He was healthy, vegetarian, you name it. It was a total out of left field situation. And what it did, as I look back on it, it's been nine years, but what it did for me was really throw my teachings in my face. I had to do the work. I had to look inside and understand what it was all about and and why this happened in my life. You know, it's one thing to teach it. Yeah. And I, I definitely did apply all of it in my life, but this really put it in my face, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> it gave your teachings a all new perspective. Now you had to apply yes. it to yourself. I got a lot of things I want to ask, but before I ask, because well, I'm 50 years old, Bill's like 54. What caused his stroke? Was it just genetic or? Yeah, that's the only thing we can figure because his dad had a stroke. And so with, you know, all the testing that we went through in the hospital, they basically just said, yeah, it must be genetic. (laughs) How did you know when he had a stroke? I asked this because I have blood clots and 
my great grandfather on my dad's side died of a stroke uh, due to a cut, and I have to take blood thinners every day. And I just would like to be able to tell my wife, you know, if, beware if this happens, I could be having a stroke. Like, how did you know? Well, it's funny because for some reason I had read on Facebook or somewhere that one of the warning signs is a tongue drooping. Oh. And so it actually is a, a funny story. I was in bed. I was fast asleep and he was in the living room. He was a massage therapist. And so he said, I, don't, I think I'm going to stay up and just maybe work on myself a little bit, a little massage here and there. He had a f- few other symptoms. His eyes were bright red and he's a math genius and he couldn't do very simple math problems. I knew something was going on. And when he woke me up, he poked me on the side and said, I feel weird. The very first thing I said in my deep sleep, I said, stick out your tongue. And his tongue was drooping. I said, okay, you're having a stroke. Let's go to the hospital. So that's a a real interesting sign to beware of. Right, because that seems like kind of a mild stroke, right? Because a lot of times you see their face will droop or they lose the ability to speak and Things that would be big red flags, but that tongue and just, I feel weird. A lot of times they'll tell you, oh, just go lay down and that's it. You know, because with the stroke, you got to get to the hospital. Yeah, I knew something was going on and it was a major stroke and he lost his ability to speak and his entire right side is useless. But the tongue was the, the dead giveaway to me. So what happened afterwards? Can he talk now or? It's been nine years. He's able to utter, as they say, utter words here and there if he wants to. It's very hard for him. He's still in a lot of speech therapy. Occasionally he gets a sentence out, but that was the biggest challenge. He's not able to move his arm still. He's able to walk very slowly, but those symptoms are pretty tough. The doctor said he lost a third of his brain. So, But the brain is plastic and there's synapses that rejoin and he can relearn things and all of that wonderful stuff. But yeah, nine years. How was he emotionally? Well, for whatever lucky reason where the stroke hit the brain caused him to not care about getting better, which sounds kind of negative, but what it also did was he's happy all the time. <laughs> he's like, okay, whatever. He, wow. You know, he's he's always been a wacky, funny guy, but this really brought that out in him. And even without words, he's able to make people laugh and he just does these funny things all the time. So- yeah, emotionally, he's great. Wow. But when it comes to like the systems that you teach and stuff, has he always been completely down with yes, that, obviously? Yes, He actually did my classes. I mean, we, we had known each other before, but he did take my classes. And for several years, he would actually kind of co-teach with me. You know, he was a massage therapist and he would work on the physical and I would work on the spiritual with people. So there was definitely an interchange of wisdom and information from, from both of us at the same time. You feel like that probably helped yeah. him out through yes, this process? Definitely. Yeah. And he understands everything you say to him. You know, I have these long conversations. I don't get much verbiage back, but he's able to understand. You can tell that he totally understands. Yeah, which is great. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah, that's a blessing. What is the name of your book again? It's actually called Back Rebirth After Stroke. And this is your rebirth, his rebirth, both of your rebirth? That's a great question, Gunnar. Yes, it's both of our rebirth. Yes. When I started writing it, I thought, well, by the time I'm done with the book, he'll be completely healed. But 
you know, that didn't happen, but I certainly got an incredible value from this experience. I, I still do every single day. There's amazing growth and awareness that happens from this very trying experience. Yeah. God works in mysterious ways. You yeah, don't, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't give you anything that you're not strong enough to handle. In fact, he's going to give you things that he knows you can handle. So God bless you. And that's what the story is about or your book. I'm sure there are a lot of practical tidbits in your book about how to address and approach this situation like that. And I also believe that most people, even if they're not supporting a spouse who had a stroke, there's a million different ways I think the application in your book could be applied to other life. Uh, because at some point in your life, you are going to encounter something that these tools that you're sharing can be applied to. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that was one of my intentions in writing the book. I didn't want it to just be about stroke because like you said, everybody goes through trying experiences. Everybody might go through a loved one that needs caregiving or themselves, but the book really does address any kind of broad issue of that. And it looks at it in the same way that I teach. It looks at it in a spiritual way as well as an emotional way. I was very raw with my emotions. I didn't hold back. The best writing always is. Yeah, there's a lot of funny stories in it too and things that people read and go, oh my God. <laughs> so yes, it was very funny too. Well, all the best writing, certainly in my opinion, is written emotionally. Yeah. It's, it's delivered from raw emotion, but it's also there to approach and affect other people's raw emotions. Yeah. That's power, in my opinion. It's the greatest power in the pen is simply affecting the reader's emotions. Yeah. And it sounds like you got a very emotional book written from true emotion and designed to affect people emotionally. So that's amazing. So. Bill, did you have anything else you wanted to ask her? Yeah. You know, first of all, I'm always down with this kind of stuff. But my mother brought a lot of that into my life. Like I was raised Catholic and everything. But she was always like, but get other points of view. Read this Rosicrucian book. Read this, read that. And she was always encouraging me to expand my horizon. The thing that strikes me about yours that I don't think I've ever heard is when you say, I'm going to let you discover yeah. who you are. Usually it's, you need to be like this, or you need to be like us, or you need to discover that. I, I think that's unique about your thing, but what would you say is the quintessential point that makes your approach different than all the other? Oh, well, everything. <laughs> the fact that it is experiential, the fact that I don't tell people who they are or what they should do. I basically just assist people in discovering it themselves because I find that when somebody tells me something about myself, I just go, okay, yeah, whatever. But when mm. I discover it, when I reach down inside and mm -hmm. say, oh, I'm supposed to write this book, you know, then it becomes real, then it becomes authentic. And then it becomes, I have to do it. You know, I, I knew I had to write this book. Yeah, I, I love that. That makes her such a perfect guest for this show, too, because we're always trying to encourage people to, like, find that yeah. thing in them that makes them great and yeah. do it. So uh, there's no way I'm not buying your book, by the way. There's no way. Oh, good. Yeah, I love that, Bill. You, you nailed it. The thing is, we're always emphasizing on this show, and me and Bill are big proponents of, is find yourself. And I love the approach of instead of somebody telling you who you are or should be, how about self-reflection and you discover who you are and if yeah. somebody can do that a lot of people never do i imagine but if they can discover who they truly are as a person there's like no limits there so i know you got a chapter you wanted to read us before we go yeah i do i just want to make one comment about what you said i find not only 
does it bring joy and fulfillment and all of that? But it also prevents illness. <laughs> it prevents walking through life being miserable all the time and not knowing why. Just a, a quick story. When I was writing my first book, I fought it tooth and nail. I just didn't want to do it. I'm not a writer. I, what do I have to say? This is too embarrassing. All of those little voices in my head all the time. And suddenly one day I woke up and my right hand felt like it was paralyzed. I could not move my fingers. And what I heard intuitively was, that's because you're not writing the book. And I said, oh, come on, I can't write the book. My fingers are hurting. And the little voice said, sit down and write the book. So I forced myself to sit down at the computer. And the minute I sat down at the computer and started writing, my hand stopped hurting. So it's that kind of thing. It's a silly example, but that's magnify that. And why are we, you know, in pain? Why are we sick? Why are we miserable? Because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Not right. Silly. I think that's the human condition. So many people, and we all do to some degree, put up roadblocks to their own happiness. Yes, absolutely. Their self-doubt, self-loathing, guilt, on and on and on. These are the reasons why we don't feel we're worthy of success or happiness or whatever. But ultimately, we're all worthy of happiness. And I think if you're some lowly, miserable wretch out there listening to this, you got nothing to lose. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> Read the book. And if you want, you can go back to your miserable, wretched life. Or find <laughs> happiness and fulfillment. Your choice. So your chapter. Okay. This chapter is just a couple pages. And the title of the chapter was Stripped to the Core Intimacy. Standing next to him stretched out on a gurney, we await the latest round of doctor-ordered x-rays. Out of the blue, every cell in my body vibrates. I'm overcome with love for this man. Looking at Michael, I'm able to see who he really is, stripped of pretenses, no acts, no masks, no need for approval, a helpless loving baby with primal needs, simply concerned with survival. All I feel is love. I just love him. How can this moment feel more intimate than anything I've ever experienced in our marriage? I hold his hand stroke his forehead, kiss his cheek, nothing is more intimate. At this moment, there's nothing more that I need. The energy in my heart feels like it's been cracked wide open. Adrenaline rushes in. I feel like I'm soaring out of my body. Looking around at the other bodies lying on gurneys, I feel the same intense love for each of them. Compassion born of empathy. All of us suffering the same pain not just those who've ended up here, but for the strength and small triumphs of enduring this scary thing called life, being human. We are all in the rehab hospital of life. As a spiritual teacher, I talk in depth about unconditional love with my students. I've felt it frequently, but this is more profound than anything I've yet to feel. Not conceptual, real, authentically real, thankful. Mm. Yeah. I think you love somebody until an event like this happens. And then you really find out how much you really love yeah, them. Yeah, and I think you expressed it in a way I've never heard before. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well well done, Morales. Just w tell us where you can find the book, by the way. It's all on Amazon. Everything I write is on Amazon. So it's just under Royce Morales. Yes. So they go there looking for your books. Do you have social media or a website or anything like that? I do. Um, Perfect Life Awakening is my website or RoyceMorales.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You name it. I'm all over it. I do a lot of YouTubing. I have my own TV slash radio show on Om Times Media. I'm just all over the place. Plus, as always, if you archive our show, I'll have all her links in the show notes. Well, thanks for coming on. God bless you and keep up the good work. God bless your husband. Have a great 
great night. Our thing on 1010 The King.